Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to this week's episode of the Periodical Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin, along with the outstanding Tavis Killian. What's up? And we are here to continue our three-part series on President Joe Biden's energy policy and his clean energy revolution. This week, we'll be discussing President Biden's second executive action on climate change, in addition to the moratorium released by the Department of the Interior on President Biden's first day in office. Our discussion today will cover the content in this week's periodical that I released this past Wednesday, February the 3rd. So let's dive right in. Incoming United States President Joe Biden wasted no time putting the climate crisis back on the United States government agenda, proving to the world that he meant business. Since a solid majority of his campaign was built on climate change and the environment, it was no surprise Joe Biden took large strides on his first day to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement and reverse Trump-era environmental actions. But Biden did not stop there, ending his first week in the White House on his newly coined Climate Day. The first part of this series discussed Biden's plan for the future of energy in America that sets the country down a new path, one aimed at transition and lasting change during his clean energy revolution and his first executive order on climate change. The second part of this three-part series, this episode, will begin to investigate his second executive action on climate change in addition to the moratorium released by the Department of the Interior on President Biden's first day in office. Clearly, the president's climate change and environmental agenda mark a reversal from policies under his predecessor, who sought to maximize fossil fuels by removing regulations and easing environmental reviews. Clearly, there is a new sheriff in town. While Biden's first executive order on climate change was a springboard to action, his second order titled Protecting Public Health and the Environment and Restoring Science to Tackle the Climate Crisis is a massive laundry list of plans to gain momentum for his clean energy revolution. The order itself is split up into eight sections detailing how to tackle the climate crisis, utilizing environmental justice. While the various segments are broad and wordy, each section can be simplified in order to understand how it will alter the energy landscape. Section 1 is quite straightforward, it's just the policy. This great country has an enduring commitment to empower the people, protect the environment and our public health, and conserve national treasures that secure our national memory. And President Biden believes the federal government has failed to live up to those expectations. In order to remedy that, his clean energy plan calls to advance environmental justice. The federal government must be guided by the best science and be protected by processes that ensure integrity of federal decision making. Therefore, President Biden has made a commitment to the American people to empower them and ensure environmental and public health through science. This may be through ensuring access to clean air and water, holding polluters accountable for their actions, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, or prioritizing environmental health. He believes action must be taken now by all executive departments and agencies to review and address previous federal regulations and orders from the past that conflict with the human right to environmental justice. Similar to his executive order to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, on his first day in office, President Joe Biden signed an additional springboard order to advance environmental justice by immediately reviewing actions taken between January 20th, 2017 and January 20th, 2021. Chief among those are to review an action that finalized amendments to the New Source Performance Standards, the NSPS, for the oil and natural gas sector signed by President Trump on September 15th, 2020. The action reduced Obama administration methane emission controls in the oil and gas sector, and Biden took action to again reverse these mandates by September 2021. Furthermore, Biden is proposing new regulations to establish, quote, comprehensive standards of performance and emission guidelines for methane and volatile organic compound emissions from existing operations in the oil and gas sector, including the exploration and production, transmission, processing, 
and storage segments, end quote. This section is key because in August 2020, the United States Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA, began rolling back emissions regulations to curb the release of methane enacted during Barack Obama's two terms in the White House. The actions, expected but nonetheless condemned by environmentalists, had a little-noticed side effect. Experts predict that it could lead to higher emissions of volatile organic compounds and hazardous air pollutants that cause smog and have been linked to cancer, respiratory illness, and a growing list of other ailments, which is precisely why President Biden is taking action. Granted, while the Trump administration took a bit of a step back on these issues, several states actually ended up making significant changes to create stricter regulations on emissions, air quality, and flaring rules. But now, the federal government can again take the lead with Joe Biden in the driver's seat. Lately, press coverage seems to imply that methane is the number one climate enemy, whether it's methane leakage, flaring of methane, or use in buildings. This has made a push for methane reduction's low-hanging fruit for climate advocacy groups. But on August 13th, 2020, the EPA issued two final rules making it simpler and less burdensome for the oil and natural gas industry to comply with the new source performance standards for the oil and natural gas industry. Essentially, the move loosened Obama-era national standards on the extraction of oil and natural gas, which had been implemented to limit methane from leaking into the atmosphere to alleviate the economic burden on producers. It was estimated, back in 2019, that these rule adjustments would save the domestic oil and gas industry a mere 97 to 123 million total from 2019 to 2023 because the Obama-era regulations had already been in place for several years. Biden's reversal of Trump-era requirements may impact EMP operators in several ways, including burdening smaller operators with more restrained budgets, while providing opportunities for other areas of the oil and gas sector. Trump's administration believes the regulations targeted a vilified participant of the energy machine while ignoring the other high-polluting sources. Since the single largest single source of methane emissions in the United States, enteric fermentation, comes from livestock as a byproduct of digestion and cannot be fixed readily or easily, the policy appears to attack the greenhouse gases known to cause substantial global heating and not an industry. It is foolish to assume that every policy the Trump administration adopted is wrong and should be reversed, but many of Trump's changes to Obama-era sea policy are likely prime targets for Biden to roll back. The methane emissions section of Biden's executive order seemed to be less aimed at solving environmental justice and maybe more of an attempt to restore some of the environmental regulations created as he was vice president. So I wanted to highlight something. Like you said, enteric fermentation, you know, as you would say, cow farts, pig farts, whatever, all of that digestion. I, that's what I tell people. Soil, not oil. While oil and gas does have emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, we have to look at the farming, the Slashenberg agriculture that occurs. But was there any regulations for U.S. farming that would address this methane emission? Yes and no. And that's where things get interesting. This specific section is exactly targeting that Trump policy that reversed those Obama administration methane emissions. That being said, in Section 8, which we'll discuss a little bit later, it does say, okay, we also need to investigate, quote, other environmental policies that the Trump administration ignored, but it doesn't have anything directly targeted. This one specifically is just talking about oil and gas. The fifth section of President Biden's second executive order on climate change highlights environmental justice for protecting Alaska's National Wildlife Refuge by imposing a temporary moratorium on all oil and natural gas leasing activities. Such actions are in direct opposition to those taken by his predecessor, but are in line with Obama-era policies. 
This moratorium is the antithesis of the Coastal Plain Oil and Gas Leasing Program as established by the record of decision signed by Donald Trump on August 17, 2020 for the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. This is all to say that the new executive order allows the Secretary of the Interior to review the program and as appropriate, quote, and consistent with all applicable law, conduct a new comprehensive analysis of the potential environmental impacts of the oil and gas programs and the presidential memorandum of December 20th, 2016, and hereby reinstated in their original form, thereby restoring the original withdrawal of certain offshore areas in the Arctic waters and Bering Sea from oil and gas drilling, end quote. This is all to say he's reenacting the Obama ban in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. The Biden administration argues legal deficiencies underlying the program, including the inadequacy of the environmental review required by the National Environmental Policy Act, do not provide environmental justice to the home of caribou, polar bears, and indigenous people. On the final Tuesday of Donald Trump's presidency, the Department of the Interior's Bureau of Land Management signed and issued nine leases it auctioned off earlier that month, spanning 437,000 acres on the refuge's coastal plain. The sale and potential drilling of previously protected coastal plains are now under review due to environmental concerns of one of the last pristine wildernesses in the world. At 19.3 million acres, it's home to multiple mountain ranges, supports one of the largest migrations of caribou, and is one of the few landscapes polar bears inhabit. In addition, indigenous communities rely on its wealth of natural resources and, other than these indigenous settlements, there's no infrastructure on the landscape. The argument for drilling, therefore, hinges on the need for Alaskan jobs and economic development. However, the sales of the leases brought less than 15 million, and all but two of those leases were purchased by the Alaska Industrial Development and Export Authority, which is an arm of the Alaska state government. BLM Alaska State Director Chad Paget noted that the leases, quote, reflected a solid commitment by both the state and industry to pursue responsible oil and gas development on Alaska's North Slope, end quote. And, more importantly, the leases cannot be reversed unless they were issued improperly. But what's important to note is that even before Biden's action, the refugees' future as a source of oil and related jobs was far from secure. The Trump administration held the refuge's first lease sale on January 6th following a 2017 decision by Congress to open the area to drilling, but the sale drew little interest. No major oil companies bid on the leases, and instead, two small independent companies each picked up a single lease, while the state-owned Alaska Industrial Development and Export Authority picked up seven. Former Alaska Governor Bill Walker had pushed the state to bid on the leases, concerned that the oil industry wouldn't show up to the sale, but is pleased that the state now holds a plethora of leases. He believes it will give the state more power in talks with the Biden administration about the refugees' future due to their strong connections with both the land and the people most affected by Biden's decisions. Either way, if the Biden administration decides to ban all leasing for oil drilling in the coastal plain, it needs to figure out a way to compensate those who would have financially benefited from their development, including the state of Alaska itself and the Alaska natives who rely on oil revenues to support their way of life. And that's what's important to me. I mean, the government's representing the people. If we look at the moratorium, I think it was the Ute tribe of the Uinta and Ure Basins in Utah that said, hey, what the hell, man? This is how we make a lot of our money. Can you walk that back so we can at least claim some revenues? And they quietly corrected that in a fact sheet released by the government. But it makes me wonder, lots of Alaska's revenue does come from oil and gas. I bet there's lots of people who benefit from it. So... Like you said, how are they going to be compensated? Absolutely. And that's something where if this moratorium goes through and if they're able to ban all 
even if it's just future leasing, they need to figure out a way to compensate those individuals who really rely on that revenue. I mean, think of indigenous people that live far up in the Arctic Circle whose livelihood relies on you know hunting and, and gathering. If they don't have certain forms of revenue, they have no way other than to be kind of very, very plainly hunters and gatherers. I mean, they can't really interact in modern society without that stipend from the government. Although the next section of Biden's executive order does not repeal any Trump-era policies, some argue it is one of the most significant actions taken on his first day of the presidency. It does not target any group, but instead is an accounting measure for the social cost of greenhouse gases. The move helps outline the basics of monitoring, accounting, defining metrics, and creating dashboards to quantify the cost of climate change. According to the executive order, it is essential that all corporations and agencies capture the full cost of greenhouse gas emissions as accurately as possible by taking global damages into account. The social cost of carbon, SCC, social cost of nitrous oxide, SCN, and social cost of methane, SCM, are estimates of the monetized damages associated with incremental increases in greenhouse gas emissions. While companies track their revenues, expenses, and monitor all sorts of risks, impacts from climate change and emissions aren't tracked in the same way. With this order, similar to the way there are generally accepted accounting principles in finance, there will now be principles for accounting the impacts of climate change. Until now, the U.S. government lacked a framework to account for what it calls the full cost of greenhouse gas emissions by taking global damages into account. The new initiative will include changes in net agricultural productivity, human health, property damage from increased flood risk, and the value of ecosystem services. While a draft for the social cost of climate change is expected by February 9th of this year, a final version to take into account climate risk, environmental justice, and intergenerational equity will be published by June 1st, 2022. An accurate social cost is essential for agencies to reasonably determine the social benefits of reducing greenhouse gas emissions when conducting cost-benefit analyses of regulatory policies and other actions. Furthermore, the order is the first action that concretely allows data and science to inform policymaking across the government. What the Biden administration is doing is attempting to provide a financial figure for the damages brought on by greenhouse gas emissions in terms of rising interest rates, destroyed farmland, and devalued infrastructure caused by natural disasters linked to global climate change. While these kinds of benchmarks aren't flashy, they will now be the government's method to determine personal and corporate accountability, which will become critical metrics as the country takes steps to meet the targets set in the Paris Agreement. In addition, it also gives companies looking to address their emission footprints an economic framework to point to as they inform their investors and the public. Although not a headline-grabbing section, requiring public companies to disclose climate risks and the greenhouse gas emissions in their operations and supply chains sets the Biden administration down a path of attempting to implement guidance from scientific data while tackling environmental injustice and climate action. And oh my God, do I love this. Because now we actually have metrics to rank these things with. Because like I was just complaining with uh, the emissions from animals. Now there's a way to go, oh wow, these have gone unchecked and this is the largest source of methane. Yeah, and then let's look at fertilizers. The largest source of SCN, beef and pork, largest source of SCM. There's going to be actually metrics for individuals to understand, okay, how are, is our sector going to account for the greenhouse gas emissions that we emit? And how can we then take these metrics into account and stride towards environmental justice and get to this climate neutrality that he's hoping for by 2050? And kind of the perfect way you said it, Tavis, is, oh my gosh, yes, numbers. <laughs> it's concrete. It's okay. This is 
actually using science, what he said that he wanted to do and all these executive orders. It's a policy to be guided by the best science. It's actually a policy like that. I Like you said, Tavis, I absolutely love this section. Now let's talk about the Keystone XL pipeline. So if there was ever an environmental battle exemplifying a game of table tennis, it would be the stop-start story of the Keystone XL pipeline, the sixth section of Biden's ninth executive order. The Keystone pipeline system originally went online in June of 2010, operating in Canada and the United States. It runs from the Western Canadian Sedimentary Basin in Alberta to refineries in Illinois and Texas, as well as tank farms and oil pipeline distribution centers in Cushing, Oklahoma. The pipeline became well-known when its planned fourth phase, the Keystone XL, attracted opposition from environmentalists, becoming a symbol for the battle over climate change and fossil fuels. In 2015, the Keystone XL project was temporarily delayed by President Barack Obama, who denied its border crossing, but on January 24, 2017, President Donald Trump took action to permit the pipeline's completion. The proposed Keystone XL pipeline was a $13 billion project that planned to connect and secure a growing supply of Canadian crude oil with the largest refining centers in the United States, significantly benefiting the United States energy supply. Additionally, the pipeline would connect the Phase 1 pipeline terminals in Handersea, Alberta and Steel City, Nebraska by a shorter route and larger diameter pipe. Since its proposition in 2008, the project has been started, stalled, stopped, and resumed countless times. Dozens of foreign and domestic protests cite the pervasive threats to the ecosystem, drinking water sources, and public health. Since the project resumed back in 2017, though, there have been very few hiccups. Well, that is until recently when the Supreme Court ordered all Keystone XL work be halted on July 6, 2020, and indefinitely postponed on January 20, 2021, when Joe Biden canceled the presidential permit issued by Donald Trump, stopping the project in its tracks. The executive order officially revokes the March 2019 permit for the Keystone XL pipeline Trump granted to TransCanada Keystone Pipeline LP, now TC Energy Corporation, to construct, connect, operate, and maintain pipeline facilities at the international border of the United States and Canada. The permit was revoked citing a 2015 review that noted the proposed pipeline would not serve U.S. interests and would undermine U.S. climate leadership by undercutting the credibility and influence of the United States and urging other countries to take ambitious climate action. Ironically, API CEO Mike Somners put it perfectly when announcing, quote, Revoking the Keystone XL pipeline is a significant step backwards both for the environmental progress and our economic recovery, end quote. Why though? Well, the Keystone XL project has changed considerably since it was originally conceived, and this project was about to serve as the gold standard for responsible and sustainable energy infrastructure development. A week before the project's cancellation, TC Energy Corporation announced that they would achieve net zero emissions across the project's operation once placed into service in 2023 and had committed operations would be fully powered by renewable energy sources no later than 2030. In addition to its green initiatives, TC announced the signing of indigenous communities as equity owners and that the project would be constructed under project labor agreement, ensuring 100% of construction is done through union labor. Following the successful implementation of this initiative, TC Energy was expected to be among the top 10 corporate renewable sponsors in North America. Additionally, the project was projected to eliminate more than 3 million tons of CO2 equivalent emitted every year in greenhouse gas emissions, the equivalent of approximately 650,000 cars taken off the road again annually. Finally, as part of this announcement, TC Energy was expected to spur an investment of over $1.7 billion in communities along the Keystone XL footprint, 
creating approximately 1.6 gigawatts of renewable electricity capacity in thousands of construction jobs in rural and indigenous communities. Pipelines are not only the safest and most reliable method to transport oil to markets, but the initiative announced ensured it would have the lowest environmental impact of any oil pipeline in existence. Therefore, the proposition of TC Energy was directly in line with Joe Biden's initiatives, yet the project was shut down on his first day as President of the United States. A key statement about the Keystone XL permit in his executive order is quoted as saying, quote, At home, we will combat the environmental crisis with ambitious plans to build back better, design and both reduced harmful emissions, and create good clean energy jobs, end quote. But with the cancellation of the Keystone XL project, one of the largest green initiatives of 2021 has been eliminated forever. Over 1,000 jobs were immediately terminated. The creation of new jobs will no longer occur, and nearly 48,000 tons of steel scrap will now be left behind to pollute the environment. Oh, and it hurts because you say eliminated forever, but I really want to believe if it's removing over half a million cars from the offsetting half a million cars from the road annually and transporting oil in a safe way and so that we don't have to import it from, I don't know, countries that do not care about the environment. Ah, I hope this comes back. I, I do too, but the problem is, I mean, it was he was so against it for so long and the fact that on day one he said cancel that permit right here, right now. And the fact that then TC Energy the next day had to lay off a thousand people and all those projects that they said that they were going to continue as this pipeline progressed, gone. It's it's truly unfortunate to see just because all those initiatives that they had announced were in directly in line with what Joe Biden wanted. But who knows? Like you said, maybe we'll see this project completed in, in the near future. While Biden's second executive order on climate covered eight topics, the final sections deal with other executive revocations and general provisions insignificant to this specific podcast, but will be covered in the future. Although not initially an executive order by the president, an order was released by the head of the United States Department of the Interior on President Biden's inauguration day, a move we have termed the Big Kahuna. Acting U.S. Interior Secretary Scott de la Vega enacted a 60-day moratorium suspending new oil and gas leasing and drilling permits on all federal lands. On the newly coined Climate Day a week later, Joe Biden took it a step further by releasing an executive order allowing the Secretary of the Interior to indefinitely suspend all new oil and natural gas leases on public lands and offshore waters pending completion of a comprehensive review of his environmental justice policies. While completing reviews with the Secretary of Agriculture, the Secretary of Commerce, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and the Secretary of Energy, the Secretary of the Interior is also instructed to consider adjusting royalties associated with fossil fuel extraction from public lands and offshore waters or take any other, quote, appropriate actions to account for corresponding climate costs, end quote. While the indefinite suspension currently only applies to new leasing activities, many worry the 60-day moratorium on drilling permits will also be elongated indefinitely. A ban on new federal leases and a temporary ban on permits has huge potential for damage, though not as much in the near term. New drilling isn't necessarily a top priority for many energy companies with prices in demand still depressed. Companies with deep enough pockets to pay application fees anticipated federal leasing regulations and accelerated their permitting activities in 2020 to generate a backlog of federal permits. It should come as no surprise that in December alone, the BLM signed off on 847 drilling permits, a rate roughly double that it had approved each month between June and November. 
With the reduced pace of activity, companies are flush with permits but are capital restrained, so the resulting development slowdown actually benefits the new president's momentum for climate action. But that momentum will not last long. Shale basins require constant new drilling for reserves replacement, and approved federal permits will quickly begin to run out. Since federally controlled areas account for roughly one quarter of all U.S. oil production, these moves have begun an apparent war with the fossil fuel industry. In many places, such as New Mexico, federal lands sit adjacent to state and private acreage, which will make it a headache for producers with a heavy presence in those areas. Companies with higher exposure to federal lands, such as EOG Resources and Occidental Petroleum, have already experienced steeper drops in their share prices relative to their peers since before the election when a Biden victory began to look likely. But super majors such as ExxonMobil and Chevron find themselves in much better positions. If Biden follows through with a permanent ban, quote, he is shooting himself in the foot because why would you ruin the revenue stream that comes into the United States from federal land, said Betty Reed Young, who runs a small oil operation in Roswell, New Mexico. Federal fossil fuel leasing programs generated nearly $8.1 billion in tax revenue in fiscal 2020, according to the Interior Department's Office of Natural Resource Revenue, a sum shared among federal, state, local, and tribal governments. While that sounds like a large slice of the pie to distribute evenly, $7.5 billion of that still went to the federal government. Plain and simple, banning new oil and gas permitting on public lands and waters to establish targeted programs to enhance reforestation and develop renewables in the same areas with the goal of doubling offshore wind by 2030 will eliminate much-needed federal revenue. So think of it this way. How is President Biden going to pay for his $2 trillion clean energy revolution without needed revenue from the fossil fuel sector? Moreover, royalty rates, or the percentage of oil revenue that an energy company must share with the underlying landowner, are actually cheaper for federal lands than for state and private-owned acreage. But that too could change with Biden's latest executive order in which his administration now has the power to adjust how much revenue a producer must send to the government, further incentivizing a move from federal leases. Although the current order is only a temporary halt to the government-owned mineral development, an extension of this policy could result in a major implications for many actors in the energy value chain, including asset values from production and midstream companies, indigenous tribes and state programs or municipalities relying on revenue streams, and even countries exporting oil to the U.S. with hope of regaining lost market share. Joe Biden had long promised to become the climate president, and now he has detailed far-ranging plans to shift the U.S. away from fossil fuels in order to create millions of jobs in renewable energy while conserving vast swaths of public land and water. Recent actions taken by President Biden are certainly swift and precise, but the long-term effects might still be clouded. Biden is not proposing an immediate end to the oil and gas industry, but instead a swift transition away from fossil fuels. The problem is, the rate of change for these actions is much too quick for both industry and society to pivot. Industry executives have made it clear time and time again that they were prepared to work with Biden, many willing to compromise even though an increased energy cost is to be expected from the abolishment of fossil fuels. While his aggressive proposals won broad praise from environmental activists and many fellow Democrats, it has set off an intense battle with the U.S. fossil fuel industry, which has underpinned the nation's economy for more than a century. In a nation that remains heavily reliant on energy created from oil and gas, even during a shift towards cleaner energy, the president and his deputies are aware that they must take steps to blunt the short-term economic fallout on those impacted by the transition or risk economic and political turmoil. 
Biden has taken office at an inflection point in U.S. energy policy, where fossil fuels dominate transportation and electricity generation, even as they are starting to lose ground to both market forces and shifting public opinion. Quote, we've already waited too long to deal with this climate crisis, end quote, Biden said. Quote, we see it with our own eyes. We feel it. We know it in our bones, and it's time to act, end quote. The problem is the industry cannot pre-warn the public about the failures of future energy reliability without appropriate infrastructure or the dichotomy of vilifying the oil and gas industry, even though it is a staple of domestic energy consumption. If nobody wants to listen, it has to happen first. Actions by the Biden administration at this point seem to be wholly embraced by his supporters, but the nation needs to remember that campaign promises are often different than government. It is true, the United States and the world face a profound climate crisis, but small steps are the solution to tackle the climate crisis on a united front. And it may have been a little bit long-winded, but that is the end of this episode. And again, this was a multiple-part series. This was part two. Make sure you go listen back to part one if you missed it, and subscribe for future parts, because there may only be a couple more, but I guarantee you this is not the last time we talk about federal regulations on this podcast. So... Again, you can go to rarepetro.com to find plenty of resources, both audio, visual, and written, to enhance your knowledge of this changing energy landscape. But that is the end of this episode. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody. Have a good week.